0: This is the On All Cylinders Podcast.
1: Presented by Summit
0: Racing. I'm Paul Sokolos, and my co-host this week is Summit Racing's Tom Lynch. Here we go. Welcome to another On All Cylinders Podcast. I'm your host for this episode, and joining me via phone, normally we'd bring him in the studio, but you know pandemic and all, um, is Summit Racing's Tom Lynch. In addition to being just an all-around good guy, Tom happens to be a walking encyclopedia about the car we're going to be talking about a lot today. Tom, how are we doing, sir? I'm great, Paul. How are you been? Doing just fine, my friend. Uh, Tom, you want to tell the folks out there what car we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, it's going to be the Fox Body Ford Mustang. Yes, the Fox Body, a Mustang so famous that you don't even need to use the word Mustang to describe it. Now, before we dive into the Fox body specifically, Tom, you want to give the folks out there uh, a good background introduction on the Mustang in general? Well, it
1: showed up in uh, April of 1964 the uh, Plymouth Barracuda was actually the original pony car and beat it to market. The Mustang to the market by 2 weeks, but no one ever really talked about that.
0: <laughs> so wait, despite being called a Mustang, it, it wasn't the original pony car? It was not. It was the second.
1: But Plymouth just kind of went out there with a whimper. They didn't really say it, it was just like, "Hey, what's that?" It's like, "Oh, it's our new car, whatever." The Mustang, on the other hand, Ford, their PR department just killed it. They launched that thing at the New York World's Fair that year. It was front and center, and they actually had displays where you could actually travel from different places in the park in Ford Mustangs, you know, convertibles. They aired commercials on all the the major networks, uh, all three of them back then, um, the night before this official release date. I even remember reading cuz you know i i was born in the 70s so this is a little before my time but the ford was so uh run to push this car so hard that they actually ran advertisements in 2600 newspapers across the united states on opening day, they just really pushed that car hard and threw it out there in front of everybody to see. And, and it just took off, you know, like, was like gangbusters. And they even worked with Carroll Shelby and some other uh, famous road racers of the time and got those things on the FCCA uh, road tracks across the country
0: uh, immediately. In other words, Ford really kind of stacked the deck to ensure it had a hit on its hands. Now, in addition to the Mustang car, what other famous names or models did the Mustang bring to the public? Well, of course, you know, right up front, 1965,
1: you had the, the, the original GT350. Ford gave those cars to Shelby, and I remember, you know, he re- reading that he complained about this, like, I'm supposed to take this, like, secretary's car and do what with it? But, you know, Ford was <laughs> very persuasive in their argument and said, yeah, you're going to do that.
0: Okay, so a lot of us know the Carroll-Shelby connection, but what about Dearborn itself? What special Mustang models was Ford putting out?
1: You saw several packages come around. The the original Mustang GT was released in the late 60s. Um, The Mach 1, which is a huge, huge hit for Ford, it came out in 1969 and ran all the way through the end of the first generation of Mustangs through 1973, And that was like a style and performance package that was available on the uh, the sports roof Mustangs, or what we call Mustang Fastbacks. I mean, I don't think a lot of people use the sports roof term, but it's there. The original, uh, the Boss 302s, that was the hypo variant of a Mustang that was developed specifically for SCCA Trans
0: Am Racing. What I'm hearing is that since its launch in, you know, 1964 and a half, 1965, the Mustang was going up and up and up, both in popularity and performance potential. But what was happening as the 1970s were beginning to come into view? Well, the Mustang,
1: basically Ford redesigned the car. Um, they moved it kind of up market and increased the size of it substantially. Um, they actually started building that car starting in 1971 on a full-size chassis. The car gained over a foot in length and, and a few inches in width, but they actually went up over 500 pounds in curb weight to boot. So it was a much, much larger car for that 71 to 73 era. They did have some pretty notable um, fast cars. You had the 1971 Boss 351, which is actually considered one of the, the, the best uh, muscle-type cars that you could buy at that time. You know, It was just a quick car. And then after the Boss 351, they, you could also still get the 429 Cobra Jet in 1971. So they didn't... Uh, uh, you know, completely drop. Performance. There was other things on the horizon. So the muscle car in the pony car segment was kind of winding down. The big cars lasted through 73, but then an energy crisis hit the world and particularly America very hard. And foresaw the writing on the wall and decided, hey, you know, to recapture sales and recapture market share, we need to, to downsize this car again. So they created for 1974 the, the Mustang II, and it was a much smaller car than the last generation or the last of the 73. One to 73 cars you know again it, it was built primarily for a fuel economy so yeah we lost a lot of performance in the mustang too when it was introduced the original engine or the base was a 2.3 liter four-cylinder making all of 88 horsepower and then your optional high output engine was a, a 2.8 v6 that they sourced out of Ford to germany and it only made about 110 horsepower but Boring at that sounds, it really was the kind of the car that Ford needed at the time because, you know, with the energy crisis and, and stuff, they needed a fuel-efficient, sporty car. And, and people to to this day kind of say the Mustang II really don't deserve the Mustang name because it was such a low-performance car. But that first year, 1974, they sold like 386,000 of these things. It was like one of the best sales years Mustang ever had. So it was really the car that they needed, but it was not a fun time for american cars at all
0: and you know what that's that's a fair critique um all the manufacturers in detroit and and ultimately worldwide were facing a lot of the same challenges not just from like insurance companies and fuel economy but also new emission standards new crash test standards but the important thing to take away here i guess is that the mustang endured and while it may not have been the brightest spot on the mustang timeline it certainly set the stage for what was about to come next.
1: Well, in 1979, Ford introduced the third-generation Mustang. Uh, we call it the Fox body. That's, that was like an internal designation for Ford designers when they were developing the car. But it was an all-new Mustang. There was a lot of different things about that car. The first two generations of Mustangs shared a lot of the same styling cues. You know, this was like a clean sheet design. It didn't have any of the, the original stuff. It didn't have like the little indentation in the side, the, like the little C scoop that they had and the fenders of the original cars. It didn't have the tri-bar tail lamps. You know, it, it was a, a definitely a, a new uh, approach to, to building this Mustang. At the time, European cars were very highly regarded and looked well upon. Um, there was a lot of European styling cues built into this car. And at the same time, they, they decided that the Mustang twos, even though they were considerably smaller than the 71 to 73 Mustangs, they were still pretty heavy. And to get the fuel economy better and to get the performance better, they actually lighten the cars by a couple hundred pounds. so when you see a fox body mustang and you realize that it's actually like six inches longer, it's about four inches wider overall they um they actually weigh about two hundred pounds less than the cars they replace so That was a a big deal at
0: that time. And that's really worth mentioning here because it seems like nowadays when a vehicle goes through a facelift or or a new generation or even a mid-generation refresh, uh, it's going to get heavier. And that didn't happen here. So it seems to me, at least, that Ford definitely wanted to restore the Mustang's performance mantle. And it
1: was, and and Ford didn't just stop there. I mean, they they actually looked at the performance because by the end of the '70s, performance was starting to make a comeback. You had some television shows and movies that were really kind of you know making cars look like they were fun again. Like I'll just say, like the the Smokey and the Bandit movies. You know, that was a huge deal. Pontiac Transams, You know, after that, they sold the bazillion of them. You know, and it made cars fun again. And and Ford wanted to you know recapture that and so when they are introduced the car they they actually increased the horsepower of the v8 a little bit and they they brought out uh, a new engine that was totally different from anything the domestic manufacturers were making at the time and that was a 2.3 liter um, turbocharged engine
0: did i hear that right the mustang fox body was launched with a turbocharged four-cylinder that's
1: right back in 1979 and horsepower-wise, it was pretty good. It was right on par. I think it was somewhere around like 134 horsepower in that regard. Um, and the, But the 302 back then was only about 140 horse.
0: So you're telling me, at least horsepower-wise, this little Turbo 4 held its own against the mighty Ford 5-liter V8? Performance-wise,
1: yes. But the problem that Ford had was it was kind of an identity crisis. You had all these guys that had been groomed and, and brought up on V8 power being the best thing that America has to offer. And then you basically open up the door and say, hey, here's an engine with half the cylinder that you're used to. And, uh, you know, turbocharger. And uh, so while it was still a great performing engine, I think they scared a lot of people away. But when it came to performance, it was just about as equal to the the 302 or the 5 liter that was introduced at that time.
0: Hey, hey, Tom, can I stop you right there? Because I want to address something that, that may be confusing to some listeners out there. I've heard folks use the terms 5 liter and 302 pretty much interchangeably. Can you shed some light on when exactly the, the transition from cubic inch to liter designation occurred?
1: Well, one of the other changes for 1979 when it went to the you know the new European influenced Mustang was they changed the way that they they talk about the engine designation. So instead of saying that this car has a 302 cubic inch engine like Americans have been doing for decades, they actually changed it to uh, the metric liter designation. So the engine was a 5.0 liter or 5 liter engine. And, and that really stuck to this day. I mean, we still talk about stuff like that, but you know, and Ford land, you know, that was, that was when you start, start seeing the, the iconic 5.0
0: badge on the side of the cars. Oh, okay. So we've got the Fox body to thank for the legendary five liter Ford small block designation. You know, I'd always wondered about that. Certainly we saw that earlier in the sixties with the GTO. John DeLorean was a big fan of European, specifically Italians. Um, Gran Turismo Omologato can't get much more Italian than that. But on the GTO Fender badge, it said 6.5 liter instead of the cubic inch designation. And they even doubled down. They spelled a liter L-I-T-R-E instead of L-I-T-E-R. So that was uh, that was always fascinating to me. But back on topic, can you uh, talk to us a bit about how the uh, Mustang fared against some of its uh, rivals from Detroit, specifically the Camaro and Firebird? Well, when
1: Ford introduced those in 1979, the second generation Camaro and Firebird were kind of on the end of their production run but they lasted all the way till 19 through 1981 and at this time you know the mustang again was reduced in size and it became a very light car and with even the modicum of horsepower that was available in 1979 it was still a, a good performer as the years went on because there was a second energy crisis around 1980 they actually removed the five liter from the the mustang and in 1980 and 81 yeah, it was replaced with a 255 cubic inch v8 or a 4.2 liter uh they never put that on the thunder badge though
0: oh so i learned something new today the 302 5 liter v8 wasn't always the only v8 engine available on the ford mustang that is pretty fascinating
1: it is and the the engine went from about 140 ish horsepower which wasn't very much even then to like 118 and it really um the two things that it, it killed the, the v8 mustang performance because it was horrible and it actually made the 2.3 liter the standout engine the turbo engine was the standout engine for that series at least until 1982
0: <laughs> so the mustang did have an edge in a lot of the the magazine comparison tests from the era but let's be fair a lot of those tests were up against a, a second generation camaro that had already been in production for several years when did the third gen f body show up 83
1: 84 82 Yeah. It showed up in 1982. Yeah. And GM was pretty smart. You know, you had the Trans Am showed up in the the Knight Rider TV series. You know, everybody from that time period remembers Kit, you know, the talking car and and all that stuff and all the cool things that Kit could do. But, you know, that was just a a 1982 Pontiac Trans Am. And then you start seeing um, Camaros and stuff show up in television shows and stuff. Whoa,
0: slow up there. The Fox body was in plenty of movies and TV shows. I remember Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bill's quote-unquote mom, Missy. She drove a pretty wicked Mustang. Oh,
1: yeah, Missy. Yeah, she had a, uh, like an 86 G, or it was an LX or a GT convertible. It was an LX, I think.
0: And I'm pretty sure the jerk kid in the Goonies drove one.
1: <laughs> yeah, Troy. He had a Mustang GT convertible. Yeah, he took uh, Thanos for a ride on uh, a little bicycle until he sent him off of a cliff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanos. I, uh... I see what you did there. <laughs> and I, I had to go on the internet to confirm this, but in Back to the Future 2, Griff Tannen, Biff's son, I guess, he also drove a Mustang, Fox Body, right?
1: He did. I, I You know, it's always funny. When you saw that movie, I think those came out in 1990, you know, the, the future of Mustangs, I guess the 2015 Mustang, looked like it was just going to be a, a regular five liter GT convertible with a giant wing on the back.
0: Okay, okay, I got one more. The bad guy from Roadhouse, Brad Wesley. He drove one, too, am I right?
1: Yeah, he drove it all over the place, like in both lanes of the road. He ran uh, Patrick Swayze's Dalton character and his big Riviera off the road. Plus, he he lent it to his henchmen. So, Brad the to wasn't too bad of a guy. I guess if he was, you know, lending this car
0: out. All right, all right. Got to work a Roadhouse reference in there. That's our promise to the listeners. Anytime Tom and I host a podcast together, we will reference Roadhouse at least once. But we digress. Let's get kind of back on topic. Speaking of TV shows, chips, and specifically the special uh, pursuit Mustang they used in that TV show. Yeah,
1: the SSPs. Yeah, the Special Service Package Mustangs, and they they originally they originated in um, in California. You know, again, they needed a fast pursuit vehicle because the the police were driving these old um, Dodge police cars that could be outrun by any of the other performance cars of the day. So when there was a speeder. There was nothing they could do. They would just get away. And then uh, apparently someone at the uh, California Highway Patrol got fed up with that and contacted Ford. And next thing you know, you a know, special batch of Mustangs that they were stripped down, they were the coupe models or what we call notchback, V8, four-speed transmissions. Next thing you know, they could uh, run down all the the guys that were speeding. So it was a big deal. And Over the years, after seeing
0: the success
1: that California had, a lot of other states adopted it as well. Um, Florida was another big one that had a lot of those FSP Mustangs in their inventory. Okay,
0: so that was a special police package that uh, Ford was making specifically for police departments. Were there any other companies, or was Ford cranking out any other special Mustang models during this time? Oh, definitely.
1: Even early in the Fox body's life, a company that out of Detroit called American Sunroof Company, that was real popular back then because the manufacturers, the original equipment manufacturers, had stopped producing a lot of convertibles, so they were happy to step in and chop the top off of anything. And then sell it back to the public. A.F.C. and a company called McLaren got together and started modifying Mustangs and and actually Capris as well.
0: Okay, I'm going to stop you right there because you mentioned something I'd hope we'd get to eventually. You mentioned the Mercury Capri. Can you tell the folks out there all about the Mercury Capri for a sec?
1: You know, just like a lot of cars, you know, when you have the Chevrolet Camaro has a sister car, you know, built on the same chassis called the Pontiac Firebird and Pontiac Trans Am. Ford and their Lincoln Mercury divisions, you know, they decided like Mercury basically wanted to get on on the fun. They said, why should uh, Ford get all the sales? We want to join in on that as well. So in 1979, when the uh, new Fox Body Mustang introduced, they also uh, made a Mercury Capri version. And the interesting thing about the original Mustangs was initially they were built in two body styles, coupe and hatchback, or what we, a lot of enthusiasts would call a notchback and a fastback. Um, In 1983, Ford brought the convertible body style back. So from 83 to 93 through the end of the Fox body production, you had three body styles to choose from. But the Capri, they didn't do that. They only had the hatchback available the entire
0: time. So the Capri was basically Mercury's sister car to the Ford Mustang.
1: It was, yeah. They had some definitely different styling cues. Again, you know, the interiors under the hood, the chassis, suspension, steering, all that stuff's the same. The wheel tires at the time, the same stuff. Um, But they did introduce it. They had a little bit more aggressive front end with a hood that had some like uh, faux louvers on it to make it a little more racy. Um, the front and, fenders and the rear quarters were actually flared out. So that was a little bit more aggressive design than the Mustang. And this is one of the true love-it-or-hate-it aspects of a Capri is the back window, whereas Ford kept it kind of flat and, and followed the, the contours of the hatchback. The, the Capri had a, like a bubble back window. Um, that seems to be a real contention for some people. It's uh, You either like it or you don't.
0: <laughs> so, so was the Capri right on par with the Mustang in terms of performance potential?
1: Yeah, they're pretty quick. And I'll be honest with you, back in my youth, I spent quite a bit of time in a 5-liter Capri. Again, all the same mods. Everything works to, to make the cars faster. But when you kind of look overlook Fox bodies, it kind of breaks down into two categories. You have the original, what they call 4 eye cars, or the 1979-86 the cars that had the four rectangular headlights. And then the 87 to 93 cars where they had an updated front end with like an arrow headlamp on each side. So you went from four headlights to just two at the time. Um, in 1986, when that body style was changing over, Mercury decided that, uh, they just weren't selling enough of them to continue with it. So you're only going to find the Capri's up to
0: 1986. All right. Just wanted to do like a little sidebar on the Mercury Capri. It's an interesting Fox body footnote. Um, anyway, back on topic, we were kind of talking about Ford special models and special tuners that worked on Mustangs. Uh,
1: Models. Oh, we had, uh, uh, a racer named Steve Saleen, he actually got became a, a pretty successful road racer in Fox Body Mustangs, and he actually developed uh, a line of performance parts initially and started selling those, and then sales were so brisk that he was able to um, begin manufacturing turnkey race cars, or I'm sorry, turnkey street cars. He started off in like 1984 with like maybe 15 or 20 cars. And by the end of the, uh, the 80s, he was actually making a few hundred a year. So those became really big special edition
0: cars. What about special models that came right out of the home office?
1: Yeah, uh, another really great model, and this came straight from Ford was the uh, 1984 to 86 um, SVO Mustang, another version of a turbocharged four-cylinder. This one was actually a lot better because while the earlier cars made a decent amount of power for what they were, they didn't have the electronic control. So the, the engines were a little finicky. And the thing about the 5-liter from the time they have been they introduced in the 1968 until they stopped making them was those engines are anvil tough. You, just, you can beat on a 5-liter or a 302. And as long as you give them a little bit of maintenance once in a while, they are going to run. But these four-cylinders with turbos, you know, they they took a lot more maintenance to keep them going right. But the SVO introduced the electronic engine controls, um, EFI. That just really increased the performance of those engines dramatically. I mean, they went from like 130 horsepower uh, up to like 175, which – you know, 40 horsepower jump is pretty significant. And by the end of the production run, they were up to 205 horsepower and in the neighborhood of about 250 pounds feet of torque, too. So they were actually very substantial engines.
0: Now, you said that was the Ford Mustang SVO. For the benefit of the folks listening, could you explain what SVO is? Yeah, SVO,
1: that was like Ford's internal hot rod department. And it, SVO did stand for special vehicle
0: operation. Yeah, but what about SVT? Did that replace SVO? I'm getting lost in the acronyms. Help me out here.
1: It's the same thing, actually. It's the same group of people, still the internal hot rod department, but they went through a name change. So SVT, uh, SVO later became SVT, and SVT just stands for Special Vehicle Team.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, Tom, but didn't SVT crank out a couple of hot Fox Body Mustangs as well? They did. Um, The
1: 1993 Cobra and the Cobra R, that was a swan song for the Fox Body platform in 1993. So these were probably the best of the five-liter cars that you could have got. They did come with a little bit more creature comforts, but they also increased the power up to like 235 horsepower that year. And they were the only car that, um, if you look at the the quarter mile, zero to sixty times, they were the only one that actually dipped into the sixes. Or I'm sorry, into the fives. There you had like a zero to sixty of like 5.7 seconds, where all the other 5-liter cars were always in the low to mid 6s.
0: So you'd call those two models like the pinnacle of Fox Body factory performance? Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, the Cobra R was actually even more special because it deleted a lot of the stuff, you know, a lot of the interior air conditioning to, to really bring the weight down. Both of the cars both shared you know, uh, better brakes, um, bigger tire and wheel package.
0: And those were just the factory hot rods. From what I understand, part of the major appeal of the Fox Body platform was that it was so easy to pull more performance out of. I mean, racers and street performance folks were capable of making some serious cars out of these. Oh, of
1: course, yes. There was a lot of reasons to do that. First off, they were cheap. I mean, you look at other cars in that time period. I mean, the Mustang was one of the cheapest cars you could buy. On top of that, it was easy to work on. Um, They reduced the size of the strut towers and stuff in those cars and actually made quite a bit of room inside the engine compartment. So as we found later, you know, people that wanted to swap engines, or, or even later wanted to add power adders to the car, like superchargers or turbos. You actually have quite a bit of room to be able to do that. But getting back to the original car, uh, eventually, you know, the original five liter Mustangs had four speed transmissions, and then 1983 they uh, introduced the the T5, the board-worn T5 five speed transmission behind it. That really increased the performance quite a bit. Coupled with the fact that the car is extremely light, drag racers in particular really like these cars because they were hundreds of pounds lighter than other similar cars. And you could make a lot of power, you know, you develop a lot of power with these things. And there was just nothing faster in a straight line unless you got into the actual race
0: car. Well, it's easy to understand why. You can look at the Fox body on paper and see that the recipe is there. Yeah,
1: exactly. That whole pony car thing. You got the, the long hood, the short rear deck, it's rear wheel drive lightweight it's got a, a pretty powerful engine you know good trans you know strong transmission good rear axle yeah it, it's just that pure muscle car type formula to, to go out and make a lot of, uh, or to make a very quick, speedy
0: car. And we're not just talking about the quarter mile, eighth mile drag strip here either. Plenty of these Fox bodies hit the road courses as well. Oh,
1: of course, yeah. And they the road racer crowd, they gravitated to it for the same exact reason. You know, lightweight, easy to work on, change the suspension up quite a bit, put bigger brakes on it, bigger anti-roll bars. You know, you hear your, your terms like panhard rod, um, watt flank, you know, to get these things to come around corners you know, without sliding out. Road racers, drag racers, a lot of performance enthusiasts just gravitated this car.
0: And Ford made a lot of Fox bodies, right? Like, this wasn't a rare car.
1: Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, you still see them quite a bit. I mean, I had to wonder to myself, how many, just how many Fox bodies did they make? And, and doing a little bit of research, came up with, they made a little over 2.6 million of these cars. And when you put that into perspective, Ford in, what, 57 years of building Ford Mustangs has only produced a little over 10 million cars. So you think about that. One out of every four Mustangs ever made was a Fox body. I think that's pretty significant. It shows you the popularity of that car. Yeah,
0: Ford cranked out a ton of those, and it looks like the aftermarket has stepped up big time. While you were talking, I jumped over to SummitRacing.com, and yeah, there's plenty of Fox body stuff, plenty of 302 5-liter Ford engine stuff. We're talking cylinder heads, headers, brake kits, suspension upgrades, all sorts of stuff. And from some big names, too, Trick Flow, Edelbrock, Holly. It seems like any kind of performance you want to pull out of a Ford 302 or a Mustang Fox Body, the aftermarket's going to have your back. You can go to SummitRacing.com right now and check it all out.
1: Oh, exactly. The, the Fox Body cars, they rival the small block Chevy in parts availability. Or What's available? I mean, and to think that people are still, aftermarket companies are still creating new parts for these cars uh, uh, almost 30 years after they stopped making them. So I think that's pretty significant as well.
0: Okay, so I've moved my web browser from summitracing.com over to some local classifieds. And let's say hypothetically, and I can't stress hypothetically enough in case my wife is listening, let's say I'm shopping for a Fox body. What should I look out for?
1: Well, the downside is going to be age. You know, like I said, that car is over 30 years old now. Trying to find one that hasn't been beaten to death into the ground. Because these cars have always been inexpensive. You know, a lot of people typically you see these cars for sale. They've had many, many owners and every one of them has treated these cars like, you know, little pseudo race cars and they've just beaten these poor things to death rust corrosion they're known to have like all cars you know built you know rust and corrosion could be a, a really big deal or the fox body is just not immune to that and it has some bad spots in it so again just like any used car that you would buy always look it over really well because these are cars that are not as easy to repair as some of the older stuff uh, because of the unit body construction and uh but the good news is there's a lot of companies making replace or I'm sorry restoration parts for Fox bodies. I mean, again, you know, you go back to the original cars, you know, the 1979 cars, those things are 42 years old now. it's good to think that there's restoration parts available for your car.
0: Yeah, it was on summitracing.com and I was seeing all sorts of restoration parts like sheet metal, hoods, window louvers, interior trim. I guess I'm just starting to feel old now that uh Cars I grew up with are considered restorable classics. But I'm starting to digress again. Uh, Before we close, though, I would like to make one small, sad observation. When you put a Mustang Fox body up against a modern car, any car really, it's going to have a significant performance disadvantage, right? Oh, yeah.
1: Well, my parents' minivan puts out more horsepower than
0: a five liter Mustang does. But
1: the thing is, because they were built as a performance car, they're in, like I said, the lightweight, you're looking at maybe a 3,100 pound car with a 225 horsepower V8, 300 pound feet of torque, and couple that with the five speed transmission, even the, the, the cruiser gears they put in those things for a little bit better fuel mileage. I mean, the thing still launches pretty hard. I mean, the cars still do zero to 60 in a little over six seconds. A bone stock one, even back in the 90s when they were still making these, they were still a low 14 second car at around 100 miles an hour, maybe high 90s. You could do some drag racer tricks. You know, you can put on the underdrive pulleys. You could do uh, like a better cat back exhaust system, cold air intake kits, bigger throttle body and EGR plates. uh, Remove that air silencer that's in the stock air box, you can play with the distributor timing and stuff. And you can actually get these cars down into the mid-13
0: range pretty easy,
1: which is still it's not as fast as today's cars, but, you know, for what you're working with, that's actually still pretty respectable.
0: Okay, and while I was looking online, I did find a couple of good listings. And while they certainly aren't as cheap as I remember them from my teenage years, Fox Bodies still seem to be pretty affordable.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you can look at that, though, is like, what are you what are your comparison? Are these as expensive as, say, the 60s muscle cars that everybody, the baby boomers have blown up into these stratospheric prices? I don't think so. And... and I kind of look at it like this, too, is that you could still daily drive them on Mustang. If you bought one of these cars, and a nice, clean one, you could still drive that every day. The '60s muscle cars were all great, and and those are what a lot of collectors still want. You can drive them every day. A lot of the things that you upgrade to make these cars drivable, maybe better brakes or better lights or overdrive transmission so you're not spending 5,000 RPM on the highway, you know, the, the Fox Body Ford came stock with all that. You think about front disc brakes, air conditioning, power steering, power windows, cruise control. Heck, even the later model ones had driver side airbags if you're worried about safety. So, I mean, these cars are still pretty contemporary as far as to be able to use them on a daily basis.
0: Okay, so we've already talked, Tom, for close to 30 minutes on the Fox Body Mustang. Got any closing wisdom you'd like to impart on the audience? I
1: think they were the right car, um, right performance car for the 80s. They rode that wave of horsepower back in through the 80s, and Ford didn't just sit back on its laurels and just say, here's a car, buy it or don't buy it, we don't care. They made continual improvements on that the 5-liter engine and the powertrains all the way up until about 1987 when they finally figured it out. And and then from 87 to 93, the last six years or so of the the production, that's when they said, you know what, we got this right. These cars are priced right. They make tons of horsepower. People are buying them. People are modifying them. And they just built their whole reputation on that. And that's why we're still talking about them 30 years
0: on. And honestly, I hope we're still talking about him in another 30 years. Hey, Tom, that wraps up this episode of the On All Cylinders podcast presented by Summit Racing. Thank you for sharing your time and knowledge with us. And uh, we hope to have you back real soon. Yeah, no problem. We'll back. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast.
1: Presented by Summit Racing.
0: Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.